Welcome friends. Uh, my name is Dr. Vikas Malotra. I'm a medical oncologist uh, practicing in the United States and I'm starting a new podcast called Medicine in Action. The idea for the podcast actually came from my son who is uh, doing a very interesting podcast in the current news and uh, invited me as a guest and we talked about uh, some medical issues and I thought it could be a worthwhile exercise to share my thoughts and uh, give a update on the summary of a lot of the medical news that is out there. In this uh, age of uh, COVID-19, I think there's a information overload. People do not know what to believe, what to make sense of. So as uh, a physician with the medical background, sometimes it is um, a little bit easier for us to cut through what is uh, clearly wrong information or even harmful information versus what is actually worthwhile out there. And trust me, it's not an easy job even for a physician to do that because there is really a lot of bad information out there. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, the focus of my opening podcast is really going to be on COVID-19 because this is uh, obviously an existential uh, threat, if you will. Uh, in in a way to a lot of people and uh, clearly our public discourse is centered around it. So the job today will be to try to make sense of it, where we are medically, what therapies that have been touted have shown some potential benefit and what uh, is the future look like. So a lot of my uh, friends, family, patients have asked me questions and I will kind of try to go through some of those questions and uh, later in the podcast we'll also try to open up uh, to call-ins uh, um, to, to people calling in and, and trying to answer that. So the, the most common thing I'm asked uh, by my friends, family, colleagues is what do I think is going to happen in the near future and what do I think uh, will be the, the, the outcome when the economy is opened up so obviously, uh, nobody has a crystal ball. We are all in totally uncharted territory. Uh, in a way, it is a massive human experiment. And we may be unwilling participants, but regardless, we have to make sense of what information we have and how do we use it to uh, lessen the damage. So this is not, uh, there's no winners here in this uh, unfortunate pandemic, but we're going to try to minimize the losses. So my, my, my uh, take on the situation is that uh, the quarantine and the social distancing we put in place has definitely stemmed the tide. And that uh, has had at least the expected benefit of minimizing uh, the number of deaths and not overwhelming our uh, medical system, but uh, the war is by no means over. This is just the end of the beginning and not the beginning of the end. Uh, my own uh, feeling and prediction is this is going to continue for about a year to year and a half. Our end game eventually has to be a vaccine, which I know I think multiple countries and multiple scientists are doing a fantastic job. We've had some encouraging news from United Kingdom. There are at least six vaccine trials ongoing in the U.S. 
And I was very encouraged to hear Bill Gates uh, speak about the fact that they have funded production of all six leading candidates of vaccines uh, because what will end up happening is that the odds improve if you have bet on multiple uh, possibilities. Uh, so we won't have a delay in production if we already are betting on all six and having massive amounts of vaccine made. So hopefully one of the six will will be will be productive. <clears throat> the odds of that are very good. There's obviously a small possibility that we won't have a vaccine even in a year and a half. But uh, I would say a majority odds in our favor that uh, we will have a functional vaccine in about one to one and a half years. So the primary goal for medical community and physicians has to be to minimize our losses in that period of time. In uh, some of the previous podcasts I've done with my son, we talked about how I believe would, uh, we, could, we could do that. In a perfect world, if it was all, at all possible, if everybody was tested, if we had enough equipment, manpower, political will, that would have been an ideal way to doing it. But I have seen no movement from the current administration in doing that. And it is a difficult job. It is almost a moon mission job or a Manhattan Project job because it will require tremendous resources, direction of the government, as well as a lot of money, donations. It could be done, though. It could be done if if there was a political will and people were behind it. Uh, if we tested everybody, then we could easily open up big portions of the economy and with the exception of people who are either infected or infectious uh, and monitoring, we could we could really open up the quickest. Now, if that is not going to happen, what is the next best plan B? And several things can be done which will actually help us uh, even when we are not able to uh, do mass testing. And my feeling is that uh, the next best thing is to open up the economy gently. We still should be doing testing of big representative portions of the population. It means that if you don't test everybody, at least try to test sample populations from multiple different age groups, different ethnic groups, different areas of the country. So we can have a sense of the virus activity uh, and uh, be more proactive in certain areas where the activity is high. So I think that has to be done. And another way we can bypass it is by doing pooled testing. Pooled testing would be equivalent of testing batches of 10 people at a time. And if all 10 are, if the, if the one group test is negative, then we do not have to worry about that group of people. But if a one test is positive, then we go back and individually test all people in that pod. So that's another idea that can be uh, looked at and would help us. But the way I feel the economy will uh, recover back is with a lot of precautions and uh, preventive measures. We will need to keep universal masking in place for a good period of time, and it's definitely effective in cutting down transmission. I think another simple measure that most businesses, restaurants, theaters, um, any place of group gathering can employ is to check temperatures. It uh, is very easy and effective now with current laser thermometers and takes literally a second to check the temperature uh, without even touching the person and that will allow us to isolate people who have a fever. Now, true, some people may have fever for other reasons, but 
for the public safety, I'm sure people will take the short-term hardship for the longer-term gain. Another important thing we'll have to focus is on the high-risk populations, people who are elderly, infirm, people who have multiple medical conditions or immune-suppressed, chemotherapy, transplant patients. These are people who would be very high risk for dying from the COVID infection if they were unfortunate enough to get it. So I think we can reasonably say that for the next year to year and a half till an effective vaccine comes out, these are the patient populations who will still need to continue to be sequestered, to be at home, and if possible, work from home, and also maintain the social distancing. The rest of the people, if, they, if you are generally young, healthy, below age of 60, and have no major comorbidities, uh, you could potentially return to work with the precautions we talked about. One flip side that we are now paying more attention to is how many people are going to have other healthcare problems and may unfortunately die from those. So one in six Americans nearly being out of work, a tremendous amount of poverty, food insecurity that's going to follow, and of course, any amount of preventive care that normally would have happened is not going to happen, will all lead to uh, increased number of cardiovascular deaths, increased number of uh, depression, suicides, drug abuse, and uh, needless to say, that has to be balanced against the risk of covid our experience with COVID now, we know we have a lot more data and recent studies from New York were very telling. They've done some population studies and those population studies suggest that actually the evidence of infection in the community is as high as 20, 21%. And uh, that is more like what we would expect a viral infection of this nature to do. When people build a herd immunity or large percentage of population has been exposed to it, then we have a less chance of massive outbreaks like we've had. And eventually our goal would be to get our population immune. And there are only two ways of getting immune. One is to be exposed to the virus, which unfortunately carries the risk of one to 2% chance of people dying from it. Or a more safer version is, of course, vaccination, which we're hoping will be available. So one of two ways, the entire population will have to be exposed to the virus to make them ultimately immune to it. Now, people have also asked me the question of, do I feel the second infections that we're having, that people are not having immunity despite being exposed to the virus? I want to clarify that that is a minority of the people. If uh, history tells us Anything with other coronaviruses, once people have been exposed, they are generally immune to that virus the vast majority of the time. It is not 100%, and there's reasons why it's not 100%. Sometimes the degree of exposure to the virus may be very small to where the body builds an immune response but loses it, or that people have an underlying medical condition where the responses are not so brisk but that, I believe, will be a small minority. The vast majority of people who've had the infection or are exposed to it will be immune to it. Uh, the other issue comes up of is uh, 
what about uh, getting certain people uh, purposefully exposed to the virus. I, I think that is obviously somewhat more dangerous and uh, not recommended unless we have uh, at least some good antiviral drugs available that are going to be effective. Uh, the data uh, that has come up uh, about hydroxychloroquine, of course, has been extremely controversial and without getting into the politics of it, I've been following the literature, the four or five studies that have come out. And I want people to know that even though a few studies have been negative, they're negative in the sense that they were not effective in people who were very sick already on ventilators. Our feeling is that hydroxychloroquine may have a role in early, milder infections or even for prevention. Of course, this is to be proven, but that has not been excluded at this time. What a study did come out and showed no benefit was in people who were on ventilators or very sick, hospitalized, and in that setting, it did not have a role and we were not surprised because at that point, I think the infection has gone too far. The, on the other hand, remdesivir, uh, the antiviral drug from Gilead Sciences, looks very promising and, of course, still ongoing in studies. We've also found uh, very effective ways to curb the cytokine storm, which unfortunately happens in a small percentage of patients but can be fatal. And there are some effective drugs that are actually have led to good outcomes. So uh, some progress there, but we would really love to see the net result of the remdesivir study. And if that is a positive, effective study, then I would say that we have made a good, good step forward. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the role of immunity. And of course, uh, this comes down to the fact that, unfortunately, a lot of the people who have been sick or have had bad outcomes tended to have some major comorbidities. So simple five or six things most people can do which would actually improve their uh, outcomes with this virus. And they would include some simple exercises, even though it's not possible to be in big groups or gyms, people can still go for walks, uh, bike riding, uh, swimming if they have access to pool, again, not in groups, but individuals or, or one or two people. Um, bottom line, any cardiovascular activity, even getting on a stationary bike, picking up some weights, a brisk walk in the neighborhood will improve your odds, will improve your immunity. And that benefit to the immunity is quite immediate, actually, within a matter of hours to days. Uh, proper sleep, very important. Uh, six to eight hours, depending on the person. Also very important to uh, minimize uh, excessive amounts of alcohol. Uh, some vitamin supplement may certainly uh, be beneficial or at least not harmful, and those would be vitamin C, D, and zinc. Those have been touted a lot, either in natural form or in the form of supplements. You know, those are all effective things. Uh, managing stress, because stress is a direct immune suppressant. We, we do know that, and that can put people at high risk. So friends, my main uh, message from this is that we do see light at the end of the tunnel. There is definitely going to be an end to this. Our end game play is still the vaccine. We will have to find ways to minimize the damage between now and then. So be well, be safe, and I look forward to joining you again next week uh, on another podcast. Have a good day. Thank you.